this passage from Romans 14 is one of those ones where we've got a little bit more work to do just to get our heads around it. And uh, I think you'll find the sermon outline will help you because I want to deal with it in a few different ways over the course of the next 25 minutes or so. Um, So have that handy and, and have your Bibles open at Romans 14. Well, I want you to imagine a a church a bit different to our own. Uh, This church was a newish congregation in the ancient city of Rome. It was simply known as the church that met in the home of Ampliatus. His house was on the Via Flamina on the northern outskirts of the city. And every Saturday, people gathered there for worship and teaching. Uh, It was a mixed church which in those days meant it was a fellowship of both Jews and Gentiles. This was a great blessing and a sweet expression of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah for all people. But being a mixed church also had its problems. Sometimes there were disagreements and clashes of perspective. I guess in this respect, the church that met in the home of Ampliatus was not unlike any other church people from different nationalities and backgrounds, people of different ages and traditions, people with different families and values, all coming together in one family of God. We could say that this is the beauty and the complexity of every Christian church. And this was certainly the situation in Rome. And the chapter in front of us today makes this very clear. In Paul's day in the Roman church, there were disputes Uh, We learn this from the very first verse of the chapter. And as the chapter unfolds, we find out what some of these disputes were about. One of them was about what people in the church should be allowed to eat. Some believed Christians were free to eat anything. But others believed that there were restrictions on Christian eating, probably restrictions they thought came to them from the law of Moses in the Old Testament. And as a result, some in this church were vegetarian by principle. Uh, We see that in verse 2. A second dispute was around the sacredness of particular days. You see that in verse 5. And and this was probably a debate about strict Sabbath keeping. And we get a hint of a third dispute in verse 21 around the consumption of alcohol. And these are just uh, the three points of tension that Paul refers to explicitly. There may have been others. And, of course, the fact that there were disputes is not really a great surprise or a great concern. Disagreements are a fact of life, perhaps particularly in churches where people tend to hold their views very passionately. So Paul does not take issue here with the presence of disputes in the church, but he does take issue with the way they've been dealt with. They have not been handled well. For example, in verse 1, Paul critiques their quarrelling. Clearly, these disputes have led to unproductive and perhaps even unkind arguments. But it goes further than that, because Paul also talks about how people have started judging others and treating them with contempt. Look at verse 3. He says, The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. You see exactly the same language used again in verse 10. But it goes even further than that because it seems that the Christians in the church who believed they were free to eat anything and free to treat all days the same may have actually just gone ahead and exercised their freedom in front of those who believed those freedoms didn't exist. 
And as a result, the Christians in the church with a more sensitive conscience had become distressed. That's the word Paul uses in verse 16. The Christians who felt free by exercising their freedom without love caused their sisters and brothers to stumble spiritually. It's verse 13, verse 20. And Paul's point here, of course, is that at this point, the stakes are very high. At this point, it's not just about annoying someone or causing offence, but potentially being destructive of their relationship with God. So this is the situation in Rome that Paul wrote to address, and that's what he's doing here in chapter 14 and in the first half of chapter 15, which we'll read next week. Now, before we begin to think about how this chapter might be applied to us and to our church, I want us to just pause and spend a few minutes defining some key terms in this chapter because there are a few words or phrases that Paul uses here which are unusual and require some explanation. There are three in particular, and again, they're listed on your outline. Firstly, there's the phrase we find in verse 1 that introduces this whole subject. Paul urges them not to quarrel over disputable matters. And this phrase is used to distinguish between disputes that really need to be had and disputes that are less necessary. We know, don't we, that there are times when it's right for us to pass judgment on the things that others believe or say or do. Paul himself models this to us. He corrects false doctrine in the strongest terms. He rebukes those who are in error. He even advocates in certain circumstances for unrepentant sinners to be excluded from the church. Make no mistake, there are times when disputes are not only allowed, but necessary. The truth of God's word and the salvation of his people are too important not to fight for. But there are a range of other issues Christians could fight about which are not of the same order or importance. There are issues about which Christians can disagree whilst maintaining strong and unified fellowship. They may be disagreements about how the scriptures should be interpreted or they may be disagreements about things the Bible is silent about. And these are the sorts of disputes that Paul is talking about in this chapter. This is a very important distinction. Here Paul's not talking about the kinds of disputes where truth is more important than peace. Instead, he's addressing the kind of disputes Christians have when they can agree to disagree and live in peace. What he calls disputable matters. Secondly, let's just think for a minute about what Paul means when he refers to weak faith. Again, it's there in the first verse of the chapter because I don't think Paul is trying to suggest that the person of weak faith is a person who doesn't really trust Christ or a person who's spiritually immature. Rather, I think he's referring here to a person who has a more sensitive conscience about some things. By implication, the person who's stronger in faith is someone who, in certain matters, perhaps has a better grasp of their freedom in Christ. We should acknowledge that Paul does see the person of weaker faith here as someone who has some things to learn. For example, in verse 14, Paul says that he's convinced that Christians are free to eat all kinds of foods. So, Paul would say that those who think Christians have restrictions upon them when it comes to eating are actually wrong. But he sees this as a deficiency in understanding rather than as a deficiency in maturity. In that sense, Paul considers himself one of the strong because 
He has a full understanding of his freedom in Jesus. And those who have an insufficient understanding of this freedom are those he calls weak. But remember, he's talking about people who believe these things very sincerely and with a humble conscience before God. And so he wants to underline that they have the same status in God's family as those who think differently. So it's only in this very restricted sense that he identifies some as weak and others as strong. It may even be that Paul is using this language with a hint of sarcasm. If so, he might be poking fun at the way some are treating others with contempt. Maybe he intends us to read the words weak and strong in inverted commas. I'm not sure. But in any event, it's important we understand what he is and isn't referring to by this. And then thirdly, I just want to spend a couple of minutes thinking about this whole idea of judgment. This is important to clarify so we don't get muddled in our thinking. Sometimes I hear Christians taking a very one-dimensional view of judgment. But the Bible has a very nuanced view of it, and this chapter reflects that nuance. On the one hand, there is the clear exhortation in this chapter for Christians not to judge others. Verse 3, verse 4, 10, 13, etc. This is the sense, I think, that judgment is most commonly thought of. And it's here that Christians can be quite one-dimensional in the way they think about it, by just seeing judgment as a bad thing. Now, of course, in this sense, at least, it is a bad thing. This is the judgment that we sometimes call judgmentalism or judginess. But on the other hand, there are senses in which judgment is a more neutral idea or a more positive one. In this chapter and in the Bible as a whole, it's definitely a positive idea when it comes to the judgment of God. And that's because it's the judgment of a perfectly just God. In righteousness, he holds all people to account for everything they've done. Look, look for example, here at verse 10, where Paul contrasts our negative judgments with God's good judgment. Let me read that to you again. Uh, You then, verse 10, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. But there's also another sense in which this chapter uses the language of judgment. And this is the sense in which we Christians make everyday judgments based on our convictions before God. And here, it's the language of discernment and consideration. A little frustratingly, our English translation actually uses different words for this. But in the original, the word, um, the word is the same as the word used to condemn judginess. For example, if you, if you look at verse 5, where Paul says that one person considers one day more sacred than another and another considers every day alike, the word considers there is actually the word for judges. It's the same word again in verse 13, where the NIV uses the phrase to make up your mind. So in those verses, the word judges, again, has a more positive connotation. Now, now the reason for pointing this out to you is that this issue is really, I think, at the heart of this chapter. And understanding the different uses of the word judge actually brings us to a good grasp of the chapter's key themes. Firstly, Christians need to make judgments all the time. They make them about their own actions based on their understanding of God's word. And they should do so considering what God thinks much more so than what they reckon others think. As verse 5 puts it, each of us should be fully convinced in our own minds. 
Now, that judgment is just an essential part of the Christian life. But secondly, it's possible for Christians to fall into the sin of judginess or of judgmentalism. And this is judging that definitely does not please God. This is when we look down on other Christians and fail to treat them with the dignity that their status in Christ affords them. This judgment is something Paul wants us to flee from. And then thirdly, this chapter reminds us again that God is the perfect judge and he will hold us to account, all of us, for every judgment we make. He will hold us to account for the judgments we make each day as we seek to live life to and for the Lord and he will also hold us to account for the judgmentalism into which we sometimes stray. I think if we understand those three different senses in which Paul uses judgment language, we'll go a long way to understanding this chapter very well. But understanding the chapter well is only the half of it. Because we also want to think about what this chapter means for us and for the culture of our church. What are the kinds of disputes we might have which are similar to the kinds of things Paul was talking about here? What are our disputable matters? In what situations might we be tempted to be judgmental or even contemptuous of others? Well, here are a few suggestions. You may have some others. It's possible that we, like the Roman church, could disagree about the extent to which those Old Testament laws apply to us. This could surface in disputes about the importance of a Sabbath day or about things like whether Christians should get a tattoo. It's also possible we could disagree about how to read the Bible and apply it in our context. This could lead to disputes about things like whether Christians can believe in evolution or disputes about what role women should play in the leadership of our church. It's also possible that we could disagree about how appropriate it is for Christians to engage with the practices of other religions or spiritualities. This might lead to disputes about the kinds of events we attend or about the freedom Christians have to do yoga or practice martial arts. It's also possible that we could disagree about what our Sunday worship services should be like. We could have disputes about how we pray or in what form we share the Lord's Supper or what kinds of music we sing to. It's also possible we could disagree about what it ought to look like for a person to be truly committed to our church. What events people should attend, how regularly they should be here on Sundays, whether they should join a home group. I think there are a range of other issues about which we might disagree too. The consumption of alcohol, our political convictions, whether or not we should wear masks in church, many other things. In all of these potential disagreements, we face the dangers that Paul describes in this chapter. We can quarrel in unproductive or unkind ways. We can look down on those who think differently to us. We can treat people with contempt, maybe avoiding those we disagree with, being dismissive of their point of view, making jokes at their expense. We can also unsettle others by the way we exercise our freedoms without regard to the distress it may be causing them. Even worse, we could potentially lead someone to act against their own conscience 
and cause them to sin. So we must see the relevance of these verses in our own context. Now, typically, those in churches who have a strong sense of their freedoms default to seeing those who are less free as immature or legalistic. I wonder if that sounds like you. Typically, those in churches who have a strong sense of the restrictions we're under see those who act with more freedom as liberal or impure. I wonder if that sounds like you. I suspect all of us incline in one direction or the other. And so all of us need to hear Paul's exhortations. Paul says there are a few things we must not do. We must not be judgmental or treat others with contempt. So if someone takes a different view to us on evolution or music in church or politics or anything else, we must not allow ourselves to be dismissive of them or unkind in the way we talk to them or ungracious in the way we talk about them with others. And we also must not cause our sisters or brothers to stumble. If you think it'd be fine to get a tattoo or join a yoga class or drink alcohol, but you know someone else in the church who thinks these things are wrong, then make sure you don't fail to love them, Paul says. Don't get a tattoo they can see. Don't mention that you do yoga. Don't drink alcohol in their presence. Don't take the risk of emboldening them to do something which they don't believe they should. Don't cause them to sin in this way. This is what the last few verses of the chapter are all about. And Paul makes it very clear that even if God is fine with Christians having a drink, if someone else thinks it's wrong, then them drinking is actually sin. Because they're going against their conscience before God. And Paul says we must not do these things because if we do, we'll distress those we love. We could even play a part in their spiritual destruction. And we could lead people, verse 16, to see legitimate and good freedoms as something evil. So there are some things that we really must not do if we're going to honour Christ in the midst of our disagreements. But there are also some things we must do. Firstly, we should work out what we think about things with our own firm convictions before God. Now, there's a great temptation for us to worry too much about what others think. Of course, there's a time for listening to others who want to teach us or question us or even rebuke us. But ultimately... We all need to make our own judgments chiefly before God. Verse 5 says, Each of us should be fully convinced about disputable matters in our own minds, which means thinking deeply about these things, wrestling with the Scriptures, praying for insight, and and not just leaning on what others say or do. We do this for the Lord, verse 8, and because we'll give an account of ourselves one day to the Lord, verse 12. But there are other things we must do as well. We must keep asking ourselves what love looks like. Verse 15 makes it clear that in this this chapter, Paul has not moved on from the major theme of this whole section. Once again, we could have called this sermon a culture of love because this is still at the centre of Paul's concern. When we disagree, how do we do so in love? This is our continuing debt to one another, as we saw last week. 
And Paul reminds us here that this isn't just serving our church family, it's serving Christ. And it isn't just pleasing God, it's pleasing others too. Uh, Listen again to verse 18. Uh, He says there, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. And it's love that means we should always pursue righteousness and peace and joy and edification. Verse 17 says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And verse 19, which might just be the verse which best summarises the whole chapter, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. This is the kind of culture God wants for our church. These are the kinds of qualities he wants us to value. But but these are not just Christian buzzwords here. Because Paul teaches us that when it comes to disputable matters, peace is more important than everyone agreeing. Think about that. Joy is more important than conformity. And edification is more important than freedom. This is the way of love, he says. That doesn't mean there's no place in our church for people to educate those who are ill-informed. Gentle teaching of the truth will always be more powerful than judgmental dismissiveness. Nor does this mean there's no place for church leaders to make decisions that some people won't like some of the time. But what Paul is saying is that our relationships with each other should always be marked by a desire to build others up. And he's saying that our own preferences and freedoms should at times be curbed because the interests of others are more important than our own. He's saying that in disagreements, as in every other moment of life, We walk in the humble way of Christ. We pursue love. And so finally this morning, two very brief but crucial reminders as we finish. Because welcoming the teaching of this chapter into the life of our own church is not just about hearing Paul's exhortations, it's also about embracing Paul's theology. And by theology, I simply mean the things he believes about God. Number one, he believes that God is the judge and so must we. And this has many implications. Remembering that judgment is God's prerogative will prevent us from taking it upon ourselves to judge. But it will also remind us that when it comes to disputable matters, I ought to be far more concerned with what I think before God than what others in the church may think. And ultimately, God's judgment reminds us that we are accountable to him for what we decide, what we do, and how we treat others. You may think that your contempt for those you disagree with is well hidden, but it's not hidden from the Lord. And he will one day expose it. The just judgment of God is on Paul's mind a lot in this chapter. But then number two, the acceptance of God. Acceptance of others is what Paul calls us to from the opening word of this chapter. But why? Verse three, because God has accepted them. 
This is the deep internal logic of this chapter because it's the deep internal logic of the gospel. Accept each other because Christ has accepted them and you. Acceptance breeds acceptance. You see? That person in church who you think is really liberal or really legalistic, they're a child of God. That person whose views you find weird or dumb, they're your sister or your brother in Christ. That person who has a different conviction to you and you find yourself thinking, why should I give up my freedoms for them? Well, Jesus died for them. He poured out his blood for them to death. And he asks you, could you endure just a little inconvenience on their account? That person who you attempted to think is less mature than you. That person whose status in the church family you attempted to question. Their status has been determined by Jesus Christ. Once and for all. They are the servant of Christ, just like you. So verse 4, Paul says, Who are you to judge someone else's servants? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. In verses 8 and 9, If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge before you again this morning that we're not all the same, that we're different to one another, and we think differently about things. And we pray, Father, that in the midst of our disagreements, that you would give to us great love, that we would never be judgmental or contemptuous of others, that we would certainly never cause others to sin against their own conscience before you by the way we exercise our freedoms. Rather, Father, give us deep love righteousness, peace, edification, and joy. Teach us to accept one another as you have so graciously accepted us. And we pray in Jesus' name.